Welcome to this edition of Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host for this episode, Dr. Sarah Wise from Atlanta, Georgia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Beswick from the University of California, Los Angeles, and we'll be discussing his recent IFAR publication, Long-Term Quality of Life After Treatment in Cytonasal Malignancy, a prospective multi-center study. Welcome, Dan, and congratulations to you and your co-authors on the paper. Thank you so much. It's great to be here today. So um, overall, sinonasal malignancies are relatively rare, um, but for the patients that experience this condition and for the medical professionals that take care of them, like you and me and many of our colleagues, um, it can be really quite significant, at least from I, what I've experienced in my practice over the years. Um, can you discuss a bit about the impetus for this study and your overall goals in performing this work? Absolutely. Um, so just as you said, these tumors are rare, and there's only a few thousand cases annually in the United States. Um, for those of us who treat them or, or patients who have this disease, we know that these tumors can have significant impacts um, on their quality of life, on how they go about their daily living. And the treatments that we use, while effective, at times can also have some morbidity, although we try to minimize those. In general, uh, there's really limited data around quality of life after treatment in patients who have sinonasal cancer. Uh, there are certainly some great studies that have been done, um, but our goal in sort of better or more fully elaborating on uh, this field was to understand what the quality of life was both before and after treatment, to follow patients for several years, five years in this case, who had treatment for sinonasal cancers, and then to begin to identify some factors that might vary quality of life over time so that we could better counsel patients who have this disease as to what they may expect over time. Yeah, so this is really important work. Um, this was a prospective multi-center study with quite a few sites involved and lots of collaborators. And I, I was hoping that you could kind of talk about some of that collaboration and give us a general synopsis of the study methods. Uh, of course. Um, so this is a prospective study, and currently we have 10 centers involved in our consortium. Um, the project actually started around 2015 or 2016 um, when I was a resident working with Peter Wong, and we began, or under Peter's guidance and leadership, we began a project to pull centers together to uh, study patients who had sinonasal cancer. So after the project started um, around 2016, uh, we were sort of under the we had the idea for the project and realized that because the tumors were so rare, we would need multiple centers to collaborate and uh, share patients and share data such that we could make meaningful research conclusions. Um, so uh, the support for the project actually originated from a young woman who was uh, treated for sinonasal undifferentiated carcinoma or SNUC in Southern California. Um, her name was Natalie Cole Regans and her family foundation has uh, very kindly and very generously supported the project from the get-go. We were appreciative of that. So based on that, we sort of put together a consortium of initially a handful and then seven. And then as of the last three years, 10 centers who pool patients together. And we study these individuals who have sinonasal cancer in a prospective fashion. And we track a variety of outcomes related to um, oncologic outcomes, such as overall survival, quality of life outcomes. And also we uh, have some aspirations to study uh, uh, molecular outcomes and that will come in the future. So this project specifically looked at quality of life over time and after treatment in patients who had sinonasal cancer. 
Uh, so again, this is a really collaborative project and we have great collaborators from all over the country. Um, there are 10 sites currently participating and helping enroll patients and analyze data. And so a project like this wouldn't be possible without uh, the collective group. And so I want to say thanks to all the co-authors and collaborators on the project. Yeah, fantastic. I um, I agree that this this work is, is really critical. Um, you know, I think in as we understand, you know, malignancies and their treatment, um, looking obviously at survivorship um, is important, but also patients sort of how they experience life day to day and what what their quality of life is, is incredibly important as well. So let's move on to um, your results. Um, If you could tell us what you found in your analyses in this study and really describe some of the major key findings. Absolutely. Um, So what we did in this study was we enrolled adult patients who had a confirmed diagnosis of cyanosal malignancy across histologies. Um, We looked at their quality of life at baseline, that is before they underwent treatment, and then we looked at their quality of life in a longitudinal fashion out through five years after treatment. Um, We did this uh, via electronic administration of validated quality of life outcome measures, uh, one measure that many of us are familiar with is the 22 outcome, 22 question cyanonasal outcome test, um, which is not 22. And the other measure that we use, which evaluates generalized quality of life, is the uh, University of Washington quality of life scale. Um, we put a variety of uh, relevant patient demographic and disease factors into multivariate modeling, and we used a technique called piecewise regression uh, because there was an inflection point in quality of life over time, and we felt that this allowed us to get a more accurate representation of the factors that evaluate or that influence quality of life. And so, our um, overall, we had 194 patients uh, who were able to be included in the study. Um, and our uh, first interesting finding was that quality of life, um, both from a cyanonasal perspective and from a generalized quality of life perspective, was uh, quite low at pretreatment baseline and in all domains improved after patients had treatment. Um, so uh, this occurred in the cyanonasal domain, as well as also in the physical and social slash emotional domain of the University of Washington quality of life scale. So the finding was consistent across three different domains in our analysis. So um, essentially, patients come in with tumors and they have a variety of symptoms related to that. Um, We know that some of the uh, interventions, surgical and non-surgical, that we offer and and use for patients um, also has some morbidity. But uh, we were um, interested to see that over time, quality of life actually improved after treatment through all domains. So that was our first finding. And then we began to look at which factors influence cyanonasal quality of life over time. And here again, we use multivariate piecewise regression analysis. And there were several factors that correlated or were associated with worse quality of life over time. Um, these were involvement of the pterygopalatine fossa by the tumor, patients who underwent uh, open resection compared to patients who were treated non-surgically, um, and then um, patients who underwent adjuvant radiation therapy as well. So these individuals had a worse cyanonasal-specific quality of life or worse NOT22 scores over time after they were treated. Another finding we looked at was uh, how did patients function physically? What was their physical quality of life? And so to do this, we used one of the two major domains of the University of Washington quality of life scale. So this is a scale that's validated and used in patients with head and neck cancer. It's commonly broken down into two domains. One is the physical domain and the other is the social or emotional domain. So um, patients uh, with sun and cancer had worse physical function or physical quality of life at baseline. And then over time after their treatment, continued worse physical quality of life on this questionnaire was predicted by several factors. 
These included open resection compared to patients who underwent uh, endoscopic resection, neck dissection, which makes sense because they may have some morbidity related to that, involvement of the pterygopalatine fossa by the tumor, um, and also males reported worse physical quality of life over time. And then our third and final sort of uh, major quality of life metric in this uh, study was the social or emotional component of the University of Washington quality of life scale. Again, this was decreased at pretreatment baseline and improved over time. However, there were some factors that were associated with worse quality of life over time. And so these included open resection compared to endoscopic resection, uh, pterygopalatine fossa involvement, which was the case for the two other quality of life measures used as well. And then surprisingly, uh, patients who had uh, positive uh, margins at the end of surgery uh, had worse uh, emotional quality of life over time. Upon reflection, it's, it's not that surprising, but it was uh, initially a surprising finding in the study. And we surmise that this may be due to the fact that patients understand now, unfortunately, that their disease was not able to be fully resected or was not fully resected in surgery. And so they're going to need additional treatments or ongoing uh, management going forwards. Those were the major findings of the study. Yeah. So um, I think that, you know, as you sort of indicated um, in describing your results, some of these things are perhaps uh, a bit predictable to those of us that, you know, have taken care of these patients over time or things that, you know, we can kind of recollect from our patient interactions. And then other things, you know, maybe not as predictable initially, but make sense on reflection, as you said, like the emotional reaction to having a tumor that may not have been able to be fully respected. Was there anything else surprising to the team as you examined your data? Any other findings that you weren't expecting? I think we all were surprised by the fact that quality of life was the worst uh, before treatment. So we all sort of expected a, a acute worsening around three to six months after people completed surgery and or radiation therapy. But pretty quickly after treatment, quality of life improved for the median person and the mean person in the study um, across all domains. Uh, so that was initially a surprising finding to us. Yeah, I, I can see how that would be surprising as well. Um, have you been able to kind of compare that to other head and neck cancer treatments? Um, does this differ from, say, for example, treatment of oropharyngeal cancer or laryngeal cancer? That's a great question. Um, and uh, patients with different types of tumors do have different sort of quality of life trajectories after various treatments. It's also something we're looking more into in an ongoing follow-up analysis or additional analysis of some of this data uh, that we hope to have more information in the near future to share with you. Excellent. Can you comment on if there are any limitations of the study? Absolutely. Um, so we're excited about the study. It includes a lot of patients and uh, one of the strengths of the study is that we were able, because of the, the number of participants involved, we were able to control for factors such as T-stage um, and other important uh, variables when making our conclusions. That being said, the study definitely has limitations. It's not a randomized trial, and so there's a limited ability to identify causality in that study, meaning we know these various factors were associated with worse quality of life over time, uh, but we can't prove causally from our methodology that that is the case. Uh, some patients in our study were, uh, almost certainly were lost to follow-up, and so that could impact our outcomes or our findings. And then while we did evaluate markers of race and ethnicity, uh, the cohort overall, overall was relatively homogenous from a racial perspective. Um, and so that also has some implications and is a limitation. 
Interesting. I, I think, though, that despite the limitations, as you've indicated, this uh, this study is is pretty strong in its numbers and um, and it you know the multiple centers and prospective aspect of it. So, congratulations once again on the on the work that you've done. So, how does the practicing rhinologist or practicing otolaryngologist best apply the this work from this study to daily patient care? Great question. So what I've been using it for is to help try to more precisely prognosticate from a quality of life perspective, how I think people will do after surgery and share that with them in our pre-counseling discussions for their surgical or multidisciplinary treatment for sinonasal tumors. So I think that's one way in which people can go about it. In the future, what we hope to do is combine and incorporate some of this quality of life data with survivorship data, with oncologic outcome data, and ideally with transcriptomic data so we can do a better job of prognosticating not just quality of life, but how uh, patients will do from a survivorship perspective as well. Yeah, I think this is, as I've said, you know, critical work to kind of understanding the patient experience going through this and being able to, you know, to counsel them and also to, you know, clearly understand the disease process overall. What's next? What what are what are your is this group doing in the future? There's a lot going on. So we're working on additional follow-up studies on quality of life. We're looking at some different components of the SNOP 22 uh, domains. We're looking at different areas of the University of Washington quality of life scale the two main outcome measures that we use in this study. Collectively, everyone uh, who's participating in the study is an awesome collaborator. We're also working on some biobanking and hope to um, evaluate tissues from a different uh, transcriptomic perspective in the future and look at how those uh, transcriptomic and RNA levels and things like that correlate with different outcomes. The goal would be if we can you know, use additional tissue from a biopsy to uh, identify additional treatments, immunotherapy potentially, or other strategies that might help better understand this sort of nebulous and multiple histology thing that is sinonasal malignancy. Yeah, I think that's, you know, one of the the interesting things that I I saw from looking at your work is that it does include lots of different, you know, histologic types. And I think that that's inherent to sort of the sinonasal malignancy disease process. But overall, you know, incredible work that you've done. So Thank you for joining me, Dan. Um, Really encourage our listeners to get the manuscript, review it, understand it, and hopefully use it in your practice. This has been an excellent discussion. And again, congratulations to you and your colleagues on your publication. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, And thank you, of course, to our Scope It Out listeners. This is Sarah Wise for Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm signing off for now and we'll see you next time. Thank you.